Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And we've talked a lot in the past six months, or done a few episodes, I should say, on Britain and India and the relationship between the two countries. And a subject that comes up a lot is the difficulty we have, or the difficulty many people have had, in reconciling British ideals and colonial British action. They just don't always mesh up. Yeah, especially notable are some British attitudes in the Lakshmi Bai episode that we did recently. Sir Hugh Rose, the man whose forces finally defeated this Indian Joan of Arc, also called her remarkable for her bravery, cleverness, and perseverance. Yeah, so this personal admiration combined with a policy of suppression can seem really, really strange when you look back at it. But perhaps no one epitomizes it better than Queen Victoria herself. She's sort of the ultimate in combining admiration with suppression. And on the one hand, she's all for imperialist expansion. When she officially becomes Empress of India in 1876, she's just over the moon. And at at that point, it is just a title change, pretty much. She's been effectively in charge for quite some time. On the other hand, she also falls completely head over heels for Indian culture, especially the culture that's imported directly to her by her favorite servant, her munshi or teacher, a man named Abdul Karim, and he's often called the Indian John Brown. Yeah, to understand that reference, though, we'll have to provide a little background for you on Victoria's life. When 24-year-old Abdul Karim showed up in London, Victoria was in her late 60s, and she was in a good place, celebrating her golden jubilee and finally reassuming the busy schedule of an active monarch. Yeah, so Victoria had, of course, assumed the throne as an 18-year-old sheltered girl. She had been raised in this close isolation by her mother and her mother's conniving companion, Sir John Conroy. And the plan those two had was to create a monarch that was so utterly dependent on her mother. By extension, Conroy would have this sweet position as regent. It didn't work. And as soon as Victoria became queen, she shook off her early influences and went about choosing her own. First, her prime minister, Lord Melbourne, who she relied on a lot. And then at 20, her cousin, Albert, whom she married. And if you've seen, we were joking about this earlier, if you've seen young Victoria, you know this part of the story. Maybe it's something we'll revisit in greater detail at some point. Yeah. Much requested. But just to give you a background on where Victoria is coming from. Yeah, so she and Albert had nine children, and in her constant state of pregnancy and childbearing, Victoria handed over a lot of her power to her husband. She was happy with him, though. She wrote once, without him, everything loses its interest. So when Albert died quite suddenly in 1861, the 42-year-old Victoria went into a very deep depression, and she had dealt with depression throughout her life. She had postpartum depression after the birth of most, most of her children. But this was different. She wrote, quote, those paroxysms of despair and yearning and longing and of daily, nightly longing to die for the first three years never left me. So her people were okay with this deep mourning for a while. After all, it was 
the respectful, respectable thing to do for a Victorian woman, for Victoria herself. But eventually it just became too much. She wasn't doing her job. She was never around. She was never at functions. She was just missing. I, I think I even found a political cartoon from the time, which is the British lion sitting behind the throne, which is completely empty. The crown is there. And it's wondering where the queen is because she's just gone. Yeah, you may have to post this one on a blog or something. Right. So from there, it's oversimplifying both Victoria's personal feelings and her rule a little bit. But basically, two things happened to finally draw her out of this depression. One was her interest in imperialism, and the other was her interest in her husband's former ghillie. And that was John Brown, who was Scottish, and he became her close friend in 1864 until his death in 1883. And there's been a lot of debate about the precise nature of Victoria and Brown's relationship. (laughs) Another movie, another potential podcast, I think. Definitely. And I mean, she was called Mrs. Brown, and she scandalized her court by staying alone with John Brown in her Scottish cottage. And it caused a lot of talk, definitely. But it's certain, regardless of, of how far their relationship went, it's certain they were very, very close. And she went into deep mourning after his death, too. And after her own death, which happened about 20 years later, she had her servant secretly add to her coffin not only mementos from Albert, who she was still in mourning four years later, but a photo and a handkerchief and a lock of Brown's hair. So definitely, John Brown played a pretty major role in Victoria's life. But by 1887, four years after Brown's death, Victoria was once again a fully active monarch. Her her low point in popularity had come around 1870, and it had been steadily on the uptick since then. But by 1887, she was fully reformed. She was more popular than she had been in a long time. And the year conveniently marked her golden jubilee, which is 50 years as the monarch. Yeah, so she had a lot of people in from all over to celebrate with her, including some Indian royalty. And so Victoria wanted two Indian servants to wait on them. And that's how she first met Abdul Karim. And Karim was a 24-year-old from Agra, and he had been recommended to Victoria by his superior officer at the jail where he worked as a clerk. So the first thing he does when he gets to London is tour the city visits the zoo. He also visits Madame Tussauds. Which is just in everything now. I feel like wax is the new exhumation. <laughs> <laughs> I thought cross-dressing was the new exhumation after we did all those Women's History Month episodes. But maybe. who knows? Maybe we just have a lot of new themes. Yeah, we'll see what, what comes out on top in the end. Yeah. So after he does this little tourist thing in London, he meets up with the Queen. Her first impressions of him are well exhibited, I think, in this quote. She says... The one, Mohammed Buksh, which is the other one, is very dark with a very smiling expression. And the other, much younger, called Abdul Karim, is much lighter, tall, and with a fine, serious countenance. His father is a native doctor at Agra. They both kissed my feet. So there you go. I guess a good first impression from Victoria. She likes him. She calls him back later. And we don't know much else about Muhammad. We do know that within the year, Kareem had graduated way above waiting tables. He was sampling curry with the queen, which became one of her dining favorites. And he was teaching her Urdu and Hindi. And she really loves it, too. She's up in years, but she completely throws herself into her studies trying to master these languages. And 
eventually even produces a 13-volume Hindustani diary. And I'm just going to give you the description from the royal website where you can actually see uh, a one picture of a page from these diaries because it's really hard to understand the translation process that Abdul, Karim, and Victoria worked out. So here we go. It is thought that Queen Victoria wrote the English text at the bottom, that Abdul Karim then wrote the middle section with the English text put into the correct word order for the Hindustani translation in the Hindustani words below in English script. And that finally, the queen wrote the text in Urdu characters. So lots of languages going on, help with grammar and vocabulary, I'm guessing. I know he also made her a phrase book with with simple, everyday sort of phrases copied out in an anglicized version so she could just look it up and be able to say what she needed to to whatever print she was talking with. But Kareem still doesn't have an official position, even though he's clearly with her quite a lot. Yeah, so after a year, he thinks his work is too menial considering his experience in India, and he wants to go home. So Victoria doesn't want that to happen, and so she promotes him to official Munshi, an Indian clerk to the queen. So he's basically her personal secretary at that point. And, and her personal teacher still. And her personal teacher. So it's high-rolling for him from there on out. He starts mingling with the bigwigs on his annual trips to India by 1890. He has servants of his own by 1891, and he's allowed to carry a sword and wear traditional dress. Yeah, and he brings over his family, too. Victoria is concerned that he might miss his wife back home in India, so he brings her over. I think he brings his nephew over eventually, and they're given cottages at each of Victoria's estates. And, of course, when we say cottage, that is an understatement. They're lavishly decorated, lovely homes. He even gets his own cottage at Balmoral named for him, Kareem's Cottage, or at least that's Victoria's nickname for it. And his father notably becomes the first to smoke a hookah at Windsor Castle, which was kind of a big milestone because Victoria did not like smoking at all in her presence. Yeah, so she kind of embraces his family, and though she refuses to confer knighthood on Kareem, she grows closer and closer to him. She writes him several letters a day, signing some with, quote, your loving mother or your closest friend or with kisses, according to the BBC. Yeah. She also befriends his wife and offers him advice on the couple's inability to have children. So getting really personal and family matters here. here. Yeah. And she sends him a Christmas tree in 1893 and also seeks out his advice, too. So she's not just getting into super personal husband and wife business, but she's asking him about Indian affairs and his opinions. And it's this last point that really drives her family and the court crazy. And it frustrates some of her people in government in India, too, because as a Muslim Indian, Kareem's opinions tend to decide with his own people. And not everyone in India under Victoria's government thought that was a very good idea. But Victoria's family wasn't just upset about his influence in her politics. They're also upset just by how close they are, this 60-something-year-old woman and this young Indian man in his 20s, and especially when, surprise, surprise, they too spend a night together in the same Highland cottage that Victoria would visit with John Brown. 
this just did not seem okay to the royal family at all. It's a little fishy. So it comes back to them, I guess, when Victoria dies. When she dies, her family, they do follow her wishes and they allow Kareem to serve as one of her principal mourners. But as soon as it's over, her son, now Edward VII, fires Kareem and orders that the records of their relationship kept both at his UK and Indian homes be destroyed. Yeah, but we don't want you to think that this is solely related to the relationship of Victoria and Abdul Karim, because it's actually in keeping with the general revisionism that Victoria's children practiced after her death. For instance, her daughter Beatrice copied out and edited the decades and decades of journals kept by, by Victoria. She had kept journals since she was a girl, and her daughter literally copied them all out taking out the parts she thought were inappropriate. Yeah, painstakingly, right? I mean, she even cut out images and things and yeah, paste them in the new versions. Again, on the on the royal website, there are some copies of documents related relating to Victoria's life. And one of them is the diary entry right before she got married. So probably nothing would have been too scandalous in that. And you can see a little cutout where Victoria has sketched a profile of herself in her wedding headdress. And I guess Beatrice has felt the need to preserve the little picture, but altered the text and copy it out herself. So in a similar fashion, they took the material from her time with Kareem and sort of destroyed all evidence. Whitewashed it. Right. But there was still enough evidence left to know that Victoria had had a very close relationship with this Indian teacher of hers. For one thing, those Hindustani journals kept at Windsor Castle. They were still there, although they hadn't been translated at all until recently. And letters Victoria wrote to other people that mentioned Kareem. Yeah, for instance, she wrote a a letter to her daughter, Vicky, saying that Kareem was a very strict master, but a perfect gentleman. So they couldn't really control every word that had gotten out about him. And also, since this was such a gossipy topic around court, there was there were plenty of records about this close friendship between the monarch and this man. Right. So there was enough information floating around out there for author Shrabani Basu to write a book about it write a book about the relationship between Victoria and Kareem, I should say. And while she was in India promoting this book about Victoria and Kareem, she was contacted by a surviving member of Kareem's family who read about the book in a local paper. It turns out that after Kareem's death in 1909, the family had managed to keep some of his mementos safe, including a diary covering the 10-year period between Victoria's Golden and Diamond Jubilees. So since 1947, they had kept this hidden in Pakistan. So Basu traveled to Pakistan and studied the diaries and the photo from Victoria that was signed in Urdu and other keepsakes and updated her book because clearly this was good information to to have and to add to the whole thing. There wasn't a bombshell. It wasn't like some sort of confessional letter that would really make this whole story scandalous. But the new information did mean that the story made international news. I mean, we mentioned a BBC article. It was all over the papers in March because I don't think people, or at least people had forgotten how close Victoria was to this young man. Yeah, and I mean, even though it didn't reveal anything new, it at least 
added more information, like more evidence to the store, I think. Yeah, and, and just interesting facts about it, too. We have more quotes. And I mean, I think the picture signed mm-hmm. in the language she struggled so hard to learn is, is really interesting. But I also sort of have a listener request of myself. And I know that some of you are really up on Victorian Indian policy. And I'm just Curious about any specific instances where Kareem's influence might have been seen in government, because if that's what her family and people in her government were so worried that he would just have too much power and influence, is there anything that we can look at and say that, well, that might have traced back to him in some way? Yeah, so write to us if you know anything. We'll give you the email in just a minute. But before that, we're going to do some listener mail. So this email is from Chris, and he wrote, Hi, Sarah and Dublina. I just listened to your podcast on the Oneida Group and was a little disappointed that Charles Guiteau, McKinley's assassin, didn't make an appearance. Before turning his attentions to politics and violence, he was actually a member of the Oneida community. And despite their free love attitude, apparently no one wanted to use a trysting room with him. According to some sources, he was so unpopular that he earned the nickname Charles Get Out. He left in a huff, even tried to sue Noise, as I recall, and many people think it was in large part over his sexual rejection. I remember when I first heard about this, thinking that if only he'd been more popular in bed, he probably never would have shot anyone. Anyway, love the podcast, and even though we all learned about them in history, I think you should do a presidential assassin series. There are definitely enough weird facts about the assassinations that we've either forgotten or never heard about, like Guiteau's Oneida Connection. And actually, I did see this, and I know Sarah Vowell has a new book out, too, or uh, I guess it's one of her older books that mentions this connection to Oneida. I just, I was actually thinking of saving it if we ever do. <laughs> well, now <laughs> we have an Assassinations podcast. Every now and then, there's a fact that I'll keep in my back pocket for some dreamy future podcast we'll do. Oh, that's a good idea. This is one case. This could also, it sounds like, uh, become a Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Can sexual rejection drive you to murder? Maybe we'll go suggest that to Molly and Kristen after we get out of here. But uh, thank you, Chris, for your email. I, I couldn't resist it because of your mention of the trysting room, but um, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So if any of you have any great stories like that, additions to previous podcasts or future podcasts, we love getting these entries from you guys. You do a lot of the work for us. Um, write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at Mission History or on Facebook. And you can also look up our blogs, right, Sarah? You sure can. We are at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>